Mark 8, verses 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a couple of years ago, I was moving across the country to the Pacific Northwest, and I set out to read a few novels that were set in in this area to kind of, you know, cultivate an appetite. And I started with The Night Always Comes, which is a novel by William Blotton set right here in Portland, and it was, eh, fine. And, and then I moved on to The Overstory, and oh man, has anyone read The Overstory? It's so beautiful and weird. It's exactly like Portland, which was perfect. Um, my favorite, though, by far, was David James Duncan's The Brothers K, which is an American retelling of Dostoyevsky's, and there's a few big fans in here, great, <laughs> classic, it's set in Camas, Washington, and there's this one scene that I don't think I'll ever forget, where the father, who's a washed up minor league baseball player, he's bitter at the hand that life's dealt him, he's working at this paper mill, and he gets off work at this job that he hates, that represents the life that he resents, and on this particular day, one of his sons is riding home with him. And already in a foul mood, the father is pretty put off when the son starts defending his wife, the son's mother. Their marriage is on the rocks, and the dad's just kind of saying it like he means it, even to his son. He starts pointing out all the mother's flaws, her personality quirks, and her coping mechanisms, and her outright dysfunction that the whole family just has to live in the environment of. And he rants on and on until the boy from the passenger seat blurts out this interruption. Yeah, well, at least she fights. You've stopped fighting. You've stopped fighting to see and to laugh and to love. You are a dead man walking around in a living body. You've stopped fighting for us. And in that moment, all of the bitterness and resentment and feelings of unfairness just come erupting out of this dad that he's kept bottled up and his hand flies off the steering wheel and right into the left jaw of his son in the passenger seat and this car that was a cacophony of noise a second ago, it just falls silent in the wake of that act. And that is when it happens for him. When this man is suddenly forced to look at not the circumstances of the life that he's been trying to get in order, but the character beneath those circumstances, the person that he has become, He's looking at this little face that's suddenly hard to look at, but this little face with a bloody mouth, it did not happen just in one dramatic moment of rage in a car. It happened in thousands of little moments over thousands of ordinary days. This moment is just the mirror that was finally held up to him. And what this author seems to be so tragically and brilliantly painting is a a really honest admission that in spite of our best, most sincere intentions, we will all wake up one day to discover that we've become a certain kind of father, a certain kind of mother, a certain kind of husband, a certain kind of wife, a certain kind of son or daughter, brother or sister, a certain kind of friend, a certain kind of coworker, a certain kind of neighbor. And it will not be your best intention that chooses for you. It won't be your willpower or your discipline or your circumstances. It will be your rabbi. Rabbi? Yes, your rabbi. Everyone is a disciple. Everyone is following someone or something. Everyone is aiming their attention and their affection in a particular direction. And whoever or whatever that is, is forming you into its image. When Jesus walked the earth for 33 years, his primary invitation was not listen to me, consider my teaching. It wasn't even believe in me, but follow me. To two groups of brother fishermen, follow me. To a tax collector working for the empire, follow me. A demonized sex worker, follow me. A respected priest who sneaks in his questions at midnight, follow me, a man making funeral arrangements for his father, a wealthy young success story, a future betrayer, and a restored betrayer in the midst of his guilt, follow me. In the first century, it was called discipleship. 
And when we use that word today, we almost always use it in the form of a verb. Who are you discipling? Or are you being discipled? By which we're typically referring to some version of one-to-one mentorship, typically involving uh, a weekly book study of some kind. And that's great, but that is not the way discipleship is used biblically. Historically, a disciple is a noun, not a verb. It wasn't an activity you do or a class you take. It was an identity, a person that you become. It's who you are. Disciples are people who committed their entire lives to living under a rabbi's life and teaching. They listened to the rabbi, sure. Uh, They took in their ideas, but they also followed this rabbi in the most literal sense. They went where they went and ate what they ate and slept where they slept and lived how they lived. They took on the rabbi's whole life. The aim of a disciple was to embody a rabbi's person, to become like them. The English word we have that probably most nearly matches discipleship in the ancient sense is apprentice. An apprentice is someone who's trying to learn everything from a master. And yes, of course, that involves sitting and talking and cognitive learning, but it also involves practicing and doing, right? For instance, if you were to apprentice under a mechanic, at some point to learn to take apart the engine, you're going to have to get your hands greasy. You cannot learn to be a mechanic just by watching someone else be a mechanic or listening to them explain to you what they're doing as they're doing it. You have to participate. And Jesus was a first century rabbi with disciples. And Jesus absolutely sat with and taught his disciples, but he also made them participants. He eventually sent them out with authority to do the very things they'd watched him do, and eventually he blessed and commissioned them to go and make disciples of their own. In a word, that's discipleship. And that's the invitation of Jesus, an invitation that still stands today. And if we were to pick that invitation up from first century Jerusalem and set it down in our modern culture and context, it might sound like practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. And that's our mission. That's what we're about around here. It's what we've always been about. It's what we're always going to be about. It is the foundation of the house that you have walked into today. And today is simply an invitation to join or rejoin that very mission, which I'm going to break down along these three essentials. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. So first, discipleship means being with Jesus. In John chapter 1, a couple of disciples ask Jesus a dismissible but very meaningful question. Rabbi, where are you staying? These are the first words posed to Jesus on the pages of John's gospel. And the English staying in the original Greek is meno, which can be translated stay, but it can equally be translated and is translated elsewhere in John's gospel as abide or remain. So in John chapter 1, the disciples are coming to Jesus saying, Rabbi, can we meno with you? Read, can we be with you? And then in John 15, on the last day that Jesus spoke to his disciples before the cross, he says to them, remain meno in me as I also remain in you. At one end of the story, you have disciples asking to be with Jesus. At the other end of the story, you have Jesus promising to be with and even within his disciples. And in between, you have all kinds of moments like this one in Mark chapter 3. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus absolutely will teach his disciples everything that he knows. He'll send them out to preach. He'll fill them with the very power that fills him. But first, he called them that they might be with him. Being with Jesus. This is where apprenticeship to this rabbi starts. There is nothing more meaningful, nothing that communicates more deeply to the human soul than the simple but profound tiny four-letter word, with. In life's highest moments and in our celebrations and our birthday parties and weddings and graduations, we think of who we want to be with us to mark the occasion. And in life's low points and heartbreaks and hospital visits and funerals, we think of who we want to be with us as we ride out the grief. 
Life's filled with all kinds of demands and activities. There's work and errands and career and obligations. But on your deathbed, when your numbered days are drawing to a close, you will not be thinking about your resume or your to-do list or your social calendar. You will be thinking about people, about relationship, about who you spent your life with. When I was 13 years old, in response to a challenge from an older man that I admired, I began to pray. I started filling the empty spaces in my day with conversation with a God that I wasn't entirely convinced was even listening, and something happened to me in the midst of those conversations. I discovered that I didn't just need God in some ultimate sense, but I actually liked God. I enjoyed His company. I was most alive when I was with Him. And it's been 23 years now, roughly 8,395 days, but who's counting, (laughs) since that happened to me. And the cumulative effect of this whole journey, the ups and downs, the peaks I've summited and valleys I've endured, the, the spiritual breakthroughs and the long seasons of spiritual dryness that I wondered if they would ever end, the effect of all of it has been this, that I'm 8,395 days more certain that nothing matters more than Jesus to know him as he truly is and to hear his voice calling to me again, to know myself as he knows me and to walk behind him always, wherever it may lead. I guess all I'm trying to say to you first is this, that the reward of the spiritual life, the very best part, the standout aspect among all the character formation and supernatural power and new family kind of community is simply Jesus, just to be with him. And to be a disciple means that at some point this happened to you. You were found by a good shepherd when you didn't even know that you were lost. You were renamed when all you'd ever known is the fragile identity that you'd constructed on your own. You were seen in your nakedness when you'd gotten so used to wearing disguises you didn't know there was another way. Jesus is set apart from every other rabbi in this way that his commitment to you will always outpace your commitment to him. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he said. And holding on to that is the first battle of discipleship, and it's the one you never stop fighting. Nothing in your life will ever be more formative or more contested than the assurance of God's irrevocable love for you. Nothing in your life will ever be more formative or more contested than this four-letter word, with. Meno. And on his last night, when Jesus prayed for you and I, he said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life on Jesus' terms is not about duration, first and foremost, how long we live. It's first about relation to whom we live. Be with Jesus. There's so much I don't know, but I am 8,395 days more sure of this one thing, that nothing matters more than Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He is worth everything that you will ever lay down to take hold of him, so sell everything you've got and buy that field. The best part of following Jesus is Jesus. So be with Jesus. And then become like Jesus. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today. I would summarize Jesus' invitation like this. It is a broad door and a narrow way. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi with an unusually broad door. I mean, first century discipleship typically worked like this. There were three levels of education, Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Talmudim, which were like high school, undergrad, and grad school for Jewish communities. Only there were way fewer schools, uh, making this much, much, much more competitive. Only the best and brightest. I'm talking like the summa cum laude with all the right extracurriculars from the most prestigious Talmudim would even get a glance at their resume from a rabbi. To become a disciple of a rabbi was kind of like getting a full ride to an Ivy League school or landing your dream job right out of university or being on the Forbes 30 under 30 list of ancient Jerusalem. And then Jesus rolls up saying things like this in Mark chapter 8, our teaching text. Whoever wants to be my disciple. Whoever? That's what he said. And when we say Jesus' disciples, we're talking about more than just the 12, by the way. 
We're talking about the three and then the 12 and then he had the large group of the 72 and then there's of course this even larger body called the crowds that include male and female disciples, peasants and the privileged, political liberals and conservatives. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus said. And whoever means whoever. There are no qualifications or disqualifications for entry into apprenticeship with Jesus. You, no matter who you are, no matter if you've done something that you cannot forgive yourself for, no matter if you've kept between the lines so neatly that you're not sure if you've ever really lived, no matter if you hold such a low view of yourself, you wonder if you're lovable, or if you hold such a high view of yourself, you think you're the only one who's lovable. You, no matter who you are, are invited. Whoever means whoever, the door is that broad. But a question remains, what's on the other side of this unusually broad door? Well, read along with me, picking up in our teaching text right where we left off, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So the door is broad, but the way is narrow. Elsewhere, Jesus said it even more on the nose. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now Jesus' word for road here is the Greek hodos and it can equally be translated way. You'll find this word over a hundred times in the New Testament. Most of them are in the Gospels. Most of them actually directly from the mouth of Jesus. He likes this word. He uses it quite a lot. According to Jesus, there's only one way, or I'm sorry, there's more than one way on offer. And plenty of people are on the broad road, which is easy to walk, but it ultimately leads to death. It is chipping away at my true person with every step, diminishing my dignity and my joy and my freedom. The narrow way requires a lot more intention to walk, and yet it is expanding my true person with every step, increasing my dignity and my joy and my freedom. And it was that, the narrow way of Jesus, that his earliest followers were known for. They were even named by it. Hodos is the word that you'll find four times in the book of Acts, describing Jesus' earliest followers as followers of the way. So this is how central the narrow way of Jesus was to his early disciples. They were known for the countercultural way they lived, the way that their lifestyle looked unmistakably like their rabbis. The door is broad. It is as broad as whoever. And the way is narrow, but it leads to life. And the technical word for the life Jesus invites us into is salvation. And salvation is about our past, present, and future. Biblically, salvation is about what Jesus has done for us and about what Jesus is doing and will do for us. However, in present times, salvation has often been described purely as a past work of Jesus, ignoring the present and the future. Right, it's not about what you do for God, it's all about what God has done, past tense, for you. Yes, that is absolutely true and incomplete. You see, many of us, when we heard Jesus' invitation, it sounded more like, uh, if, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will receive his grace and go to heaven when you die. Beautiful, true, but incomplete. The obvious oversight in this explanation of Jesus' salvation life is the entirety of your life which I would argue is a pretty significant oversight. Jesus isn't only teaching us how to die, he's teaching us how to live. Put as simply as possible, this explanation on its own divorces the truth of Jesus from the way of Jesus. It creates the possibility of receiving Jesus' life without ever becoming Jesus' disciple, a dichotomy that I would say is very difficult to square with scripture. It turns transformation into a transaction and minimizes the full, expansive invitation of Jesus into just a fraction of that invitation and it reimagines heaven as a future location that I arrive at rather than a present and increasingly invading reality. Eugene Peterson, a respected American pastor and author, nearing the end of his life, reflecting back on his more than five decades in ministry, said this, 
The Jesus truth, only when it is wedded to the Jesus way, produces the Jesus life. Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among Christians with whom I have worked, for fifth, worked with for 50 years as a North American pastor. See, the way of Jesus, so central to the early church that they were named by it, has become so absent from the modern church that we've all but forgotten it. But then what happens when we hold on to the Jesus truth but forget the Jesus way? We never grow up into the truth that we're reborn into. Hebrews 5 says it this way, anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Grace and grace alone is the generative force that gives birth to new life. But that new life is meant to grow and mature. Just think about the way of ordinary human development, right? A baby is fed and cuddled and cared for by unconditional parental love. And that love never goes away. It never expires. But that love is also meant to grow us up, to safely enable us to feed ourselves and dress ourselves and cooperate with others without direct and constant supervision. And then eventually, many of us will have children of our own and we will direct that same sort of unconditional love at another. And the way of spiritual development is identical. We are reborn by grace and nourished in God's unconditional love and that love never goes away, it never expires. That love is meant to grow us up though to tame our desires and curate our appetites toward creativity rather than destruction. And ultimately, that love leads to a sacrificial, self-giving way of loving others. Jesus' invitation was a broad door in a narrow way, and that broad door is called grace, and it is wide open. Come just as you are. Come and be with Jesus. The narrow way of growing up in that grace does require effort and intention and participation on our part. Become like Jesus. And if you're starting to squirm and get a little bit worried, because this is all feeling just a touch legalistic for you, you should know I'm just the messenger here. <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus himself ended his most famous sermon with the very direct proposition, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, a foundation that is sure to hold through life's triumphs and tragedies alike. But then Jesus went on. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, a foundation that cannot withstand the trials and storms that are guaranteed to come in life in this contested world. Jesus himself very directly says, if you take my truth without participating in my way, you won't discover my life. Peter, one of the 12 who walked with Jesus day in and day out, later wrote to the church, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, and then goes on to list virtues that come from walking on the narrow way with Jesus. Make every effort. It sounds like that famous Willard line, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And likewise, the Apostle John says that walking this narrow way is how we communicate our love back to Jesus through active trust. According to a Barna research survey done just 10 years ago, 84% of young adult non-Christians said that they know a Christian personally. But only 15% of those respondents said that the lifestyle of that believer is noticeably different in a good way. This is the sobering diagnosis of a whole generation of Jesus' disciples who have been reborn by the Jesus truth but have never walked the narrow Jesus way. And look, just to be as clear as possible, and I know this language is gonna be unpopular, I just need to say, Jesus is interested in behavior modif modification. The, he actually does, admittedly, want you to walk a narrow path. The unique thing about Jesus is not that he has no interest in behavior, that's not loving. If I had no interest in my children's behavior, I would knowingly allow them to perpetuate behaviors that are destroying them. That's not love. The unique thing about Jesus is that grace fuels maturity. Behavior is modified by love rather than by fear. That's what sets Jesus apart. 
Jesus couldn't be less interested in legalism, but he is relentless when it comes to transformation. And the common uh, experience of life in the everyday believer today is something short of the life and life to the full that Jesus invited us into. Instead, I think it looks something like this vicious cycle, the cycle of the normal Christian life, which goes something like this. Uh, I'm newly inspired, so then I try harder, leading to guilt when I fail, and inevitable disillusionment that perpetuates until there's that one inspiring moment again, and then the cycle starts over, right? The critical error here comes between step one and step two, try harder. Enough messing around, this week gonna be different because I'm feeling a fire in my belly again, and I mean it this time. I'm taking this seriously, I'm going to try harder, and that method never works. And there's two primary reasons for that. The first is that willpower is a depleting resource, right? We know this just in our ordinary human experience. It's why you have a lot easier time saying no to a donut in the morning than you do to a scoop of ice cream after dinner in the evening, because your willpower is worn down by the hours that tick by in the day. But secondly, we mature by training and not by trying. Right, if you want to learn to play the violin, or you dream of publishing a novel, or you want to run a six-minute mile, trying really hard isn't going to help. Right, gritting your teeth is not going to help you harmonize those squeaky strings. But training or practice will. Trying, I really mean it this time, leads to more failure, giving way to more guilt, and it deepens our disillusionment. Practice converts that same moment of inspiration into freedom in life. And so I want to replace this vicious cycle with a true one, the cycle of spiritual maturity, which I would say looks something like this. See, practice, blessing. So see is all about the wonders of God. It's often called revelation, when something new is discovered, learned, or seen about God and his invitation to me. We convert every new revelation into practice. Every time we glimpse something new of who he is, of who I am, and of what the good life is, that should be converted into some way that I can inhabit that revelation, that I can put it into practice, a way that I can get my hands greasy in participating with his transformation in me. And that can definitely look like one of the classic spiritual disciplines, like a commitment to prayer or scripture reading or Sabbath or or fasting, but it can also look unique and personal, like simplifying my possessions or prioritizing a particular friendship or a commitment to finally getting eight hours of sleep at night or a Saturday morning hiking ritual where I let go of the week's anxieties. These practices on their own aren't powerful. If we fall into the illusion that the practice is what transforms us, we take our eyes off of God and we miss out on the blessing. People like this are often devout, but in an unattractive way. There's someone that you may respect, but also might not want to become like. Do you know anyone like that? It's like the the way I feel about a bodybuilder at the gym, you know, where you're kind of like, look, I respect the commitment that it took to get there, But I also kind of feel like you're missing the point. I mean, isn't the, don't we have all these machines and exercises so that you can live a healthy and vibrant life out there in the world? But you have taken them and you're using them in such a way to live your entire life in here flexing in the mirror, right? So you're you're putting in all the work, but it's not freeing you to life because you've turned practice into your God rather than the practice freeing you for life with God. This is why I'm so helped by Richard Foster who defined spiritual practice as a way of placing yourself where God can bless you. See, spiritual practices are not ways to manipulate God to get him to do more of what you think he should be doing. They're not ways to get more of God's favor or make him like you more. Spiritual practices are just ways that we make more space in our inner lives for God to inhabit, to pour his blessing. 
Spiritual practices are like anchors that we drop in our lives to hold us in the place that God can bless us in a world of shifting uh, circumstances and thoughts and emotions. And sometimes that blessing is gonna come instantly with very little effort. Other times it will require great intention and come slowly other time, but spiritual practices always anchor us to blessing. See, once we've seen something new about God and then we've inhabited it by practice, he pours out his blessing on us and we experience more of the life of Jesus. And that blessing is sometimes personal, sometimes communal, almost always it's a little bit of both. In summary, Oswald Chambers writes this, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. So in your imagination, can you just go back to the last year, to September 2022, back to school time, no matter how old you get, one year ago, and then just walk through the last 365 days. Is there anything in the last year that you discovered, knew about God and his invitation to you? Something you saw for the first time or in a new way? And if so, how did you inhabit it by practice? Was there a way you participated in his work within you, a way that you got greasy alongside Jesus as his apprentice? And then, did you experience blessing, more of the life that he invited you into as a result? And the reason I ask is because here's the best part of this whole cycle of maturity is that it never ends. We spiral deeper and deeper into it until all we know is blessing and blessing only and blessing always. There is an unending amount of deeper discovery to know about God that we can participate in actively and receive more of his life until we truly do know it to the full in his return. In the meantime, I love the refreshing honesty of Dallas Willard who says, anyone who says that it is easy to follow Jesus is a liar. He himself said that the way is narrow, but nothing we forego in the cause of Christ. Wealth, popularity, kudos, not even our very lives can come anywhere close to the return. The price we pay to follow Jesus, whatever it might be, will acquire for us the most astounding bargain of our lives. And that is Jesus' invitation. It is a broad door, a narrow way, and the bargain of a lifetime. So be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And then finally, do what Jesus did. The aim and destination of our spiritual journey is not balance or a personal sense of peace or even character formation, not as an end in itself at least. It is to become love. The humbling gauge of spiritual formation is, am I becoming a person of love to the people who know me best and interact with me most? So how do I take my spiritual temperature well, with the gentle or harsh tone that I use with my wife and the patience that I do or don't have in parenting my children and the interruptibility or lack thereof that I possess toward my neighbors and the compassion that I offer my coworkers or the judgmental thoughts that play in the back of my mind toward them. It tends to be the great acts of world-crossing compassion that make for the most compelling stories, and yet the spiritual life is mostly ordinary, unnoticeable acts of compassion that cost me something, win me no attention, and in the process make me more alive than I ever knew possible. To become a gift of love for the sake of others, that is simply how we do what Jesus did. So look with me one more time at Mark 8. Our teaching text concludes this way. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. You'll discover full, free life according to Jesus when you, everything you are and everything you have, becomes a gift of love offered for others. And practically speaking, I think there are three major ways or three categories of ways that we express that love. I would define them as spoken love, supernatural love, and sacrificial love. So first, there's spoken love. It's important that we start just by acknowledging that we live in a unique tension as Jesus followers. On the one hand, evangelism is terribly out of style. 
right? It, it evokes an image of a street corner bullhorn or a homemade turn or burn sign. No one likes to be evangelized to, whether it's about a timeshare in Tahiti or an essential oils pyramid scheme or Jesus of Nazareth. And the most outspoken evangelists are often speaking love in a way that feels entirely confrontational and remarkably unloving. And then on the other side of the coin, preaching the gospel is an essential priority of Jesus. He calls himself the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one, the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost, and then he commissioned all of his followers, including you and I, to go out speaking the message of the gospel. And so here is the tension that our lives is wedged between. Evangelism is out of style and is an essential priority of Jesus. And so I just want to offer a couple of things that I think might relieve a bit of the tension that you could feel. The first one is that everyone is preaching a gospel. Right? The gospel of anti-racism or sexual liberation. The gospel of democratic socialism or of American nationalism. The gospel of intermittent fasting or mindfulness meditation apps or new wave psychedelics or the benefits of cold plunging. Everyone is preaching a gospel. All of those are gospels. They're all messages about where hope lies, where the fullest kind of life is found, where you can form community and how to become a better person. Everyone is preaching a gospel. Jesus' disciples are simply the people preaching his gospel. And his gospel goes something like this. There's an infinitely loving creator who designed you for life so full you've only ever tasted it in drops. And his great passion is to redeem you so fully that one day you will swim in an ocean of what you've only tasted in drops. And he has supplied everything you need for full life and everlasting relationship to him. And he will not stop until the whole of creation is blanketed in heaven. And I mean, as far as news goes, I would argue that good is a pretty conservative descriptor for that gospel. The second thing is this, that preaching Jesus' gospel is about being completely honest most of us have an allergic reaction to speaking to others about Jesus because we feel like we're selling someone something or like slipping product placement into a sincere friendship. And that's not it at all. People talk about who and what they love. Fashion, sports, music, a diet fad, a New Year's resolution, a promotion that you're interviewing for. People talk about the direction they're aiming their affection. They speak about the, to speak about the love of Jesus is not, first and foremost, to try to convince your coworkers of exclusive truth claims over a Friday evening happy hour. It's just to be completely honest about your relationship with God in an environment that you're likely used to compartmentalizing your love out of. It's to share honestly about the growth and challenges and breakthroughs and practices of your spiritual life freely as freely as you might share about sports or fashion or music. It's to invite others into your life of prayer or Sabbath or community. It's to live the opposite of manipulatively, but to live completely honestly in front of all people, regardless of environment. That's it. So where are you living dishonestly? Where are you compartmentalizing your spirituality out of under the guise of being polite, but the truth is you're guarding your own comfort? And who are you loving by hiding this part of you from that place? And if the answer is you, then I would just humbly suggest that maybe speaking up out of love would move you more toward abundant life than the comfort that you're guarding. So there's spoken love, and then there's supernatural love. Because there is no denying that there's supernatural power to the way of Jesus and the way that he expresses the Father's love. I mean, he goes around healing the terminally ill and delivering the demon-possessed, and the handicapped are standing up and tap dancing after a single word from his lips. Jesus' supernatural ministry wasn't just haphazard magic. It was signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And in this way, Jesus' teaching and his miraculous ministry are inseparably intertwined. He teaches about the kingdom of God, and the miracles are signs or evidence of the inbreaking kingdom. And the reason that matters is because at the end of his life, Jesus talks a whole lot about leaving and sending. 
I'm going away, but it's for your good because I'm going to send you my spirit. And you'll do even greater things than you've seen me doing. And then after his death and resurrection, he makes an appearance to his disciples, breathes on them and says, now receive my Holy Spirit. And the remainder of the New Testament spills forth from there is essentially a bunch of ordinary people doing the stuff Jesus did. Right? The early church included words of prophecy and physical healing and miraculous answers to prayer. It's ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. We are a supernatural people, and part of the discipleship journey is discovering the supernatural power that plunged into you and I in the form of his spirit when we first began to walk with Jesus. No one's ever said this better than Teresa of Avila, who said, Christ has no body now but yours. Go out and be Christ's body to the world. And that is our call as a community of disciples, is to be Christ's body, his incarnated person here in Portland. That being said, the most profound use of Christ's body was not in the working of a supernatural miracle, but in sacrifice, sacrificial love. On his last night, Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. My friend Mike had had a particularly long week and he had to work late several nights. He had a newborn at home. He just had an endless barrage of demands, time-consuming demands. And so by Wednesday, he was already daydreaming about an evening out at his favorite restaurant, having a meal on Friday night and just like taking a load off. But it did not work out that way. Because Mike's in recovery, and he's working the steps, and he and his sponsor were on the 12th step, which is all about uh, loving others through service. And he had made a commitment at this window, in this window of his life to say yes to any and every service opportunity that he was directly presented. That was particularly inconvenient on this week because he was asked to come and to share a meal among this hospital for the severely mentally handicapped and so rather than sit down at the restaurant that he was daydreaming of on that Friday evening, he found himself holding a cafeteria tray with mashed up peas and an unidentifiable meat substance, sitting next to a man who was so severely mentally ill that he was unable to use words at all, interacting with him purely through touch and, and nonverbal communication. So Mike's sitting there with this man trying to communicate companionship to him somehow. And he's reflecting all this back to me on the following Saturday morning and he says, you know what's strange? Is that somehow being there, eating off that cafeteria tray with that man, being present to someone who didn't want or need anything from me except someone to offer their presence back to him, someone to companion him even just for an hour, it expanded my soul with a kind of refreshment and life that that fancy dinner never could have touched. See, he went in thinking that these suffering people needed his service. And what he discovered was that it's exactly the other way around, that he needed their presence, because in their presence he discovered Jesus. It's the miraculous ministry of the early church that often gets celebrated most today, but in their time, the scandal of this new community that set the world on fire was that they defined people by personhood and not by usefulness. You see, the early church took root in a Greco-Roman world that discarded people that were not immediately useful. The sick, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan were often discarded to live beyond the city gate, outside of view of the rest of society. And in our modern world, we've dulled the sting of that practice quite a bit, but we still order our, our social lives by usefulness. We still so quickly toss aside the easily overlooked, and we unconsciously pursue self-promotion and self-fulfillment, not sacrificial love. And I think the primary reason for that is because sacrificial love is so inefficient. It makes no obvious impact. There's no big splash. There's no immediate result. I can rarely measure the return on investment. Exactly like when Jesus got up from the table and picked up a towel and a water basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. No big splash. No immediate impact. Very hard to measure the return on investment. And the next morning when he carried a cross on his back and he let them nail him down to it, 
No big splash, no immediate impact, very hard to measure the return on investment in the few days that followed. Sacrifice. That's how we too can do what Jesus did. And as we sacrificially love others, we experience something Jesus described that makes no sense to our minds, but it makes all the sense in the world to our experience. That as we sacrificially lay down our lives for others, we are filled with more and more of the life we actually crave. As the years of your one brief life fade, what will matter most profoundly is not your work, accomplishments, reputation, or perception. All that matters. But what will matter most is how you love the people you get to live your days alongside. All of our stories one day get weighed on the scale of love. So what weighs more when you set it on that scale? And what becomes lighter? Do your best to live today in response to that weight. That's how you do what Jesus did. So look, this is just an introduction, or maybe it's a reintroduction, casting vision for our church over the next year. We believe that the church is family, and if you're new around here, we just want you to know the family history. We want you to know who we are and what we value. And so if you're just exploring Jesus, you don't know what you think about this rabbi at all, and all that sounds like a whole lot, you should know that wherever you are on the journey of spirituality, you have a place here and you are so welcome here. But if you consider Bridgetown family, we do want you to know what it means to fully participate in this family. So if there's resonance in you and you're saying, yes, I want that, then there's five things that we'd ask you to commit to, five commitments. The first is practice the way of Jesus, that you actually would organize the whole of your life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. The second is live in community. We organize our church in smaller Bridgetown communities that meet midweek around a table. That's how we live out our communal vision. We come together on Sundays around a stage. We come together midweek around a table. And these Bridgetown communities are the heartbeat of our church. And so as we begin a new year together, uh, if you're already in a Bridgetown community, this is an invitation to recommit to those ordinary people that you're following this extraordinary rabbi with. And if you're not in a Bridgetown community, the way in is through Basics is coming up in early October. We'd love to see you there. You're invited. Third is that you'd gather on Sundays. We actually do ask that you would prioritize the Sunday worship gathering because we believe that we're formed by coming together. Now look, of course, you're going to travel and all kinds of stuff like that, but when you're in the city, being with the larger family should be a priority. So we are one church with three gatherings at 9 and 11 here and at 5 p.m. downtown. Then fourth, serve. Most of what we do, both in the church and beyond the walls of our church in our city, is entirely volunteer run. It takes all hands on deck to be the church. So if you're not already serving, you can check out the opportunities to serve right now, both within our church and in our city with our justice partners on our website. And if you are already serving, thank you. Uh, and then finally, fifth, give. We're a church in the most ancient sense, and that includes being a people of, ger of generosity. Uh, we believe that, that all of our existence, entirely everything we do, it is built entirely on the generosity of this local family. And 10% or tithing is the biblical watermark. But if you're not giving it all, then 1% would be a fantastic place to start. And if you've been doing an automatic 10% withdrawal for years and it just doesn't even touch your life in any measurable sense, then maybe there's an invitation to prayerfully consider what sacrificial giving would look like so that it becomes more a part of your spiritual practice and not just an unconscious thing. And obviously, this is honestly definitely the stickiest one for me to name as a pastor. But at the same time, I want to name it because I believe in the generosity of the body and I myself live this and will never call you to live anything that I am not living myself. So practice the way of Jesus, live in community, gather on Sunday, serve and give. Those are our five commitments. And please hear me on this. This is 100% invitation. There's no obligation or coercion here at all. There's no PR. There is no spin. But in addition, today, I want to take the opportunity to respond to the most wonderful question that I'm occasionally asked as a pastor. What's the best way I can serve here? Where are the needs? What a wonderful question. Let me respond publicly to all of you at the same time. 
Right now it is to worship with us on Sunday evenings downtown. Why? Well, a few reasons. First, because no part of our city was more affected by the events the last three years than downtown Portland, and yet that's also the birthplace and the origin story of this church. And we've been rebuilding there, and in that process, most, not, not quite all, but most of our core leaders who really embody and are steeped in the culture of this family have migrated to the east side. But we are reshaping Bridgetown culture on Sunday evenings right now, and we need some of you who helped form that culture in the first place to plant yourself like a seed that will grow to foster that growth that's happening downtown. The second thing is because our downtown worship gathering is bursting with kingdom potential. We have begun a, a weekly feast where we're welcoming in our neediest neighbors, or I'm sorry, a monthly feast where we're welcoming in our neediest neighbors to eat alongside us and to break bread together. And we're dreaming of a day when we always worship first at the table and then at the altar. Wouldn't that be beautiful if every week we were feeding our city tangibly and spiritually? And then finally, the future leaders of Bridgetown are downtown on Sunday nights right now. The most frequent story I hear from the seasoned leaders of our church goes something like this. Yeah, I was in college, and I started going to this worship gathering downtown, and then 15 years in a marriage, and three kids later, here we are still rooting our lives in Portland, going after the same vision. And that's beautiful, and it causes me to ask, who are those 20-year-olds right now? And then I see them every week on Sunday night downtown, and I wonder... Who is putting their arm around them? Who is leading them deeper into the way of Jesus? And who is helping grow up the future leaders of our church? So, just in case you've been wanting to know where you're most needed and wanted, there's something special bubbling downtown, and we'd love you to plant yourself there and help foster that new life. But let's land this plane, shall we? One day, sooner than you think, you will wake up to discover that you have become certain kind of parent, certain kind of spouse, certain kind of friend or neighbor or coworker. And that wake up moment might look dramatic and sudden the way it did for that father in the cab of that car with his son. Or it might look quite simple and subtle, just like a sudden moment of clarity or reflection. But either way, who you become is not going to be built on one dramatic moment or a few dramatic experiences, but thousands of ordinary moments on thousands of ordinary days. And it won't be your best intention that chooses for you, and it won't be your willpower or your discipline or your circumstances or a stroke of good or bad luck. It will be your rabbi. Do you know who your rabbi is? Because everyone is following someone or something aiming their attention and their affection at a rabbi. And whoever or whatever that is, shaping you into its image right now. We are a community of apprentices, intentionally and unapologetically lining ourselves up behind Jesus of Nazareth as our rabbi to follow him. And you are invited. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are invited along this journey with a broad door, a narrow way, and the bargain of a lifetime.